The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Russus John Rushdoony. The Dream of Reason, Chalcedon Position Paper Number 13 Western Europe, since the beginning of the Enlightenment, has been given to one cultural fad after another. For example, the Deist, with their myth of a natural religion, common to all men and humanistic in nature, saw old China as the actual embodiment of such a faith. The result was a long-standing delight in things Chinese for reasons unrelated to the actual life of China. One of the most enduring and curious of these cultural fads was the interest and delight in things Turkish. Even Turkish furniture became very popular for a time, however great the discomfort. We have a relic of this fad in the continuing use of the term, quote, Ottoman, unquote, for a type of backless chair or sofa. Historians also have been a part of the adulation very often. The Turkish armies were inferior to Western ones, and when strong resistance was made, hastily assembled and poorly equipped armies in the 15th century under Hunyadi, Skanderberg, and Stephen of Moldavia, defeated major Turkish armies. Usually, the European forces were divided. Some were ready to see the Turks defeat their enemies, and others were indifferent. The Turks usually overwhelmed their enemies with dramatically larger forces and a prodigal use of men. The Turks could usually count on most Europeans to be their friends. The father of Abdul Hamid II, quote, the damned, unquote, once ordered his son to kiss the hand of an elderly Christian visitor. When the young boy refused something he found, quote, absolutely revolting, unquote, his father angrily declared, quote, Do you know who this gentleman is? It is the English ambassador, the best friend of my house and my country, and the English, although not belonging to our faith, 
or our most faithful allies, unquote. According to Abdul Hamid, quote, Upon this I reverently kissed the old gentleman's hand. It was the Boyak Elta, Lord Stratford Canning, unquote. The reason for the English position was power politics, which made them not pro-Turkish, but pro-English, as Abdul Hamid later found out. All the same, there was a cultural predisposition to work with the Turks. Western Romantics had long idealized the Turks, and musicians loved to title various pseudo-Oriental compositions as Turkish marches and the like. Marx, too, shared in this favorable view of the Turks. As Nathaniel Well points out, quote, Marx's comments concerning the Christian peoples of the Balkans were invariably harsh, contemptuous, caustic, and unkind. But when he came to the Turks, he viewed them with a benevolent eye, when, that is, he wasn't including them as subjects of oriental despotism, unquote. N. Well, Karl Marx, Racist, page 128. Since 1918, because of the Armenian massacres, the old Turkish order is not as openly idealized, or else its last days are seen as a, quote, decline, unquote. This is done in despite the fact that the young Turks in Kemal Ataturk were more bloody by far than Abdul Hamid II. Why is there so much dishonest history with respect to the Turk? Why is the old Turkey still seen through rose-colored historical glasses, despite the fact that its long history has been a vicious one? A further question is necessary. Why did some late 19th and even a few early 20th century liberals view Abdul Hamid II as a great liberal? An example of a very kindly view can be found in the two-volume memoirs of Arminius Vanbury, professor of Oriental Languages in the University of Budapest, The Story of My Struggles, 1904. By 1904, the Sultan had come to dislike Western liberals and to regard himself as more enlightened than they. Vanbury gave a portrait of an unfortunate and suffering monarch. Quote, Indeed, the man had deserved a better fate. He is not nearly such a profligate as he is represented to be. He is more fit than many of his predecessors. He wants to benefit his land, but the means he has used were bound to have a contrary effect. I have received from Sultan Abdul Hamid many tokens of his favor and kindness, and I owe him an everlasting debt of gratitude. It grieves me here, where I, when I am speaking of my personal relations with him, to have to express opinions which may be displeasing to him." Unquote. Volume 2, page 389F. However, for the truly great love of Turkey, we need to turn to the earlier regimes to find the reason for Turkophilia. In 1952, a Harvard scholar made observations on Mohammed II, the conqueror on May 29, 1453, of Byzantium and Constantinople, which give us the key. Quote, As a result of the innovations introduced by Mohammed II, the structure of the Ottoman state almost conformed to Plato's ideal republic. Unquote. Myron P. Gilmore, The World of Humanism, 1453-1517, to page 7, 1952-1962. In Old Turkey, we see our futures as some would have it. A rigid educational system was set up to produce a class of military and administrative guardians to run the state. 
The sultan or philosopher king was at the top. He himself, however, was expendable. To prevent wars of succession, brothers and relatives of the succeeding ruler were killed off, or else held in prison, in reserve, if the reigning philosopher king should prove incompetent. The incompetent ruler was then executed and replaced. To provide for the guardians, Turkish and Christian children were taken. The Christian children were taken at an early age, brought up as Mohammedans, and trained for the Turkish state. A regular levy of children was the required tribute of the subject Christian peoples every five years. Most of the tribute boys were trained for military purposes. These were the famous Janizaries, the main and core group of the Turkish army. The Janizaries were kept separate from other peoples and lived for one purpose, the service of the Turkish state. They were under the very strictest of discipline and were brought up to regard themselves as an elite corps. Their prestige was so great that by 1600 Turks were bribing their way into the Janizaries. In the 17th century, membership became hereditary, and the Janizaries declined into an unruly group. In 1826, they were dissolved by a standard Turkish practice, total massacre. The ruling class and bureaucracy were similarly formed. A palace school was created to train superior children for the service of the state. These children, again, were from subject peoples and had been forcibly taken from their parents at an early age. Native Turks, or Osmanlis, had no more part in their civil government than did subject Christians, although as Moslems, the Turks had a favored place before the law. The free Muslim families provided the recruits for the learned classes, scholars, priests, teachers, and juriconsult. The life of the Turkish state was everything. The life of the subject peoples was as fuel for the state. The lives of Turks were not more highly regarded on the whole, and even the life of the sultan was expendable by execution if he were an impediment. The sultan could be as abominable personally as he chose, but he could not be a detriment to the empire without risking execution. Now we come to the heart of the matter. The Turkish empire was constructed to be a rational order, on the order of Plato's so-called republic. Its rule was to be the rule of reason, and all peoples, from sultans to subjects, were to be put in their place in terms of a governing order. Even at the top, the dreaded execution by strangulation with a bowstring was accepted as a horrible but necessary resolution of problems. The ruled and the rulers were alike subservient to the state. Abdul Hamid II saw himself as an enlightened and rational ruler. The rational solution to problems was to eliminate the problem. Hence, the systematic massacre and deportation of Armenians began under him and completed by his successors. When Abdul Hamid was deposed, he expected to be executed. It was the logical solution. His execution did not occur because his successors recognized that too drastic a break at that point was unwise. The Platonic and Turkish ideal of a rational state has long been a dream of Western man. The French Revolution was a classic example of it. The revolutionaries debated as to what would be an ideal population for France, and then began to exterminate people to reduce France to the desired status. Unwanted peoples and classes were similarly executed. The Russian Revolution gives us the same ideal. From top to bottom, 
Men are expendable at the altar of the ideal order. Classes are liquidated. Christianity is made the target of obliteration, and mass murders made a policy of state. A number of writers have given us an account of this dream of order. Notably of late, Alexander I. Solzhenitsyn, in the three volumes of the Gulag Archipelago, and in the essays edited by him on From Under the Rubble. Much earlier, Dostoevsky had depicted the same dream or nightmare in The Possessed. All things are to be destroyed to make way for the, quote, rational, unquote, and planned society. This same goal is very much with us. It is basic to the thinking of virtually every modern state. For this reason, the modern state is at total war with its peoples. They are its real enemies, who must be remade, and if they refuse, destroyed in one way or another, economically, if not physically. The means to the goal are twofold. The older version, as in the Soviet Union and Red China, holds to total terrors the main instrument in attaining the dream of the golden age of reason. The more, quote, advanced, unquote, humanist of the West have an improved version of the dream, and the classic demonstration model of this new order is Sweden. The Swedish model is enforced virtually everywhere in the non-Marxist world. Instead of total terror, this new model relies on the control of education, economics, and technology. The great study of this new model is Roland Huntford's The New Totalitarians, 1972. Sweden's planners regard the Russian effort as a failure, page 85. Humphrey noted, quote, It is probably correct to say that Sweden has been de-Christianized more efficiently than any other country, Russia not accepted, unquote, page 219. In this dream, efficiency requires that the slaves of the philosopher kings be educated to love their slavery and to regard it as freedom. George Orwell, in 1984, saw this as a goal of the new order. Man must become a happy cog in the machinery of the state, and reason, with its tools of technology, must rule over all men. Solzhenitsyn, in Gulag III, pages 522-525, calls attention to what has become of law in the Soviet Union. The law has ceased to be a transcendent standard of justice. It has been made a tool of state policy. Hence, he declares, quote, there is no law, unquote. In Sweden, this change is openly set forth as an advantage. Karl Lidbom, formerly a judge of appeal, a cabinet minister, and a social democrat theoretician, has said, quote, the purpose of the law is to realize official policy. It is one of the instruments of a changing society, unquote. A legal official told Huntford, quote, it seems natural to me that the law is there to put the intentions of the bureaucracy into practice. Unquote. Huntford, page 122. If this sounds familiar to Americans, Canadians, and others, it is with good reason so. It is all a part of the same rationalistic dream of a scientifically planned order by philosopher kings. These philosophers now have added science and behaviorism to their repertoire. They have moved from a rigidly planned to an essentially planning order, but their goal is the same. The methodology has been refined. Instead of a regular five-year draft of a limited number of boys for the Janissaries and the bureaucracy, we now have an annual call-up of all five-year-old boys and girls 
for the state school system and its humanistic indoctrination. Military service for all is in the offing. All this is done in the name of the public welfare and as a manifestation of the general benevolence of the state. Christian social deviants who insist on educating their own children in Christian schools are made the targets of civil and criminal charges, the state being the rational and the good order by presupposition, the great community, the church, Christian school, and Christian family become the obstructionist, evil, and irrational elements in society. We have now forgotten what a radical and revolutionary step the French Revolution made in recruiting by law all its citizens for its armed forces as its janissaries. Justice has now become not the righteousness and law of God, but the law and interest of the modern and humanistic state. As Humphrey said of the Swedish judiciary, quote, Justice to them means upholding the interest of the state, not primarily guaranteeing fair play to the citizen, unquote. Page 123. This is increasingly true of every modern state. The triumph of Plato and Turkey is everywhere near. This course of events should not surprise us when men despise God's law and its requirement of very severely limited civil and human powers they will create their own dreams of order. If we deny God's law, we will choose man's law. If we deny God's predestination or plan, we will substitute a man-made plan or decree of predestination. The dream of reason, a nightmare reality, will be with us as long as we deny God's law and government. The words of Joshua still stand. Quote, Choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Unquote. Joshua twenty four fifteen, June nineteen eighty. The new racism, Chalcedon position paper number fourteen. Racism is a relatively new fact on the world scene. In earlier eras, not race but religion was the basis of discrimination. Although religious history has been marred by ugly violence against other religious groups, and the history of the Christian church is no exception to this, there is a notable fact which is often forgotten. Missionary faiths, and supremely Christianity, normally seek to win other groups, not oppress them. And this missionary impulse has also provided, in many eras, a favorable cause for a friendly approach. In the modern era, as Christianity's influence receded and science began to govern together with humanism, biology came to predominate over theology. The differences between men were seen increasingly as biological and racial rather than religious. The earlier physical anthropologists made very precise and detailed physical studies of all peoples in order to establish the physical differences between races. The theory of evolution fueled this developing scientific racism and added still another important factor. Many theories began to hold to a multiple origin of the human race, whereas in Scripture all men are descendants of Adam. In evolutionary thought, all men are possibly descendants of very different evolutionary sources. Common descent in Adam meant a common creature, nature, and responsibility under God. The idea of multiple origins proved divisive. The human race was no longer the human race. It was a collection of possibly human races, a very different doctrine. 
It is important to recognize that racism was in origin a scientific doctrine. Whenever a scientific doctrine is discarded, as witnessed the idea of the acquired inheritance of environmental influences, the old scientific doctrine, as it lingers on in popular thought, is blamed on religion or popular superstition. The origins of racism are in very highly respectable scientific theorists. The fact that men like Houston Stuart Chamberlain, 1855 to 1927, a British admiral's son and son-in-law of Richard Wagner, took this scientific literature to develop what became the foundation of Nazi thought does not eliminate its scientific origins. The defeat of the Nazis did not end racism. Instead, it has again become respectable and widespread. We must remember that studies of Hitler's Germany indicate that his support came from liberals, Democrats, socialists, and the intellectual community. Scholars like Erich von Knelt Ledin have ably exposed the myth of a conservative or rightist origin for Hitler's support. The fact of Hitler's antipathy to Christianity helped enlist support for him. The new racism is widespread and common to many peoples and to every continent. It has now become a part also of the religious vocabulary of many churchmen. Thus, in almost every seminary today, pompous professors rail against a missions program which would export, quote, the white mentality, unquote, and European modes of thought. What is the white mentality and what is the European mode of thought? as against the human, common to all men. If it is specially white and European, it must be common to the pre-Christian European as a racial factor. The pre-Christian Saxons, for example, practiced human sacrifice and more. Much more could be said about the pre-Christian Europeans, but I have no desire to be flooded with angry letters, which I will discard without answer, No race born of Adam has a good history. This is the biblical fact and the historical fact. The Western mind, common to Europe and the Americas, is a product not of race, but of culture, religious culture. Elements of it, none too good, go back to the barbarian peoples of Europe. Other aspects are from Greek philosophy, again, none too good. The Greeks described all non-Greeks as barbarians on culture, not racist, grounds. They gave brilliant and inventive slaves a Greek name and status. The Western mind and culture in all its advances is a product of biblical religion. It is a religious, not a racial product. A generation ago, a pope with humane intentions said, quote, Spiritually, we are all Semites, unquote. Despite his humane intentions, he was wrong. Arabs are Semites, and we are not Arabic in our faith and culture. He would have been equally wrong had he said Hebrew or Jews. The culture of the West is not the property of any race or people in its origin. It is biblical. True, much sin is present in Western culture. True, such sin needs to be condemned. But the mind of the West bears the imprint of the Bible. It is not understandable on any other terms. Today, however, men speak of the white mentality, the Asiatic soul, and the African mind. 
Some educators are insistent on the need to recognize and give status in the schools to what they call, quote, black English, unquote. Implicit in all of this is a racist view of man. Races are seen as the sources of varying kinds of logic and reason. To deny the validity of the concept of a white mind, an African mind, or an Asiatic mind is seen as reactionary, imperialistic, and evil. The mentality of a people, however, is not a product of race, but of religion, and the culture of that religion. The key factor is always religion. There is a hidden but insane pride among those who oppose exporting the white mentality, although such men would never dare say it explicitly or even think it. What they are saying implicitly is that other races are not up to comprehending the white mentality. One brilliant black student told me with wry humor that he could always count on a high grade for minimum work from a white liberal professor. The man would regard him as inferior, but would never have the courage to admit as much, and would accordingly give him a good grade. All talk of differing mentalities has a patronizing perspective. It also says that race, not sin, is the problem of other peoples and their cultures. Because of the new racism, we now have a growing body of religious literature aimed at the seminary student, pastor, and missionary which talks about contextualization. Supposedly, the only way to communicate the gospel to other races is by giving priority to the context over biblical faith and confessional statements. The impetus for contextualization has come from the Theological Education Fund set up in 1957 by the Rockefeller Foundation. Contextualization calls also for an emphasis on the struggle for justice in terms of, quote, liberation theology, unquote, a form of Marxism, and existentialistic responses to the historical moment in the third world. Contextualization places a heavy emphasis on human need rather than God's infallible word. Its mission is thus contemporary and social, not theological and supernatural. Contextualists of all theological stripes shift their language from that of Scripture to the jargon spawned by the Theological Education Fund. Closely related to this in the area of Bible translations is the dynamic equivalence theory, now common to most Bible societies and translation groups. This doctrine, of which Eugene A. Nita is an exponent, quote, translates, unquote, the Bible into a culture and its ideas. This can mean giving an historical account a psychoanalytic or mythological meaning. Instead of reshaping the culture, the Bible is, quote, translated, unquote, into the culture. Such a doctrine makes the culture, in effect, the unerring word, not the Bible. The culture thus corrects or amends the Bible not the Bible, the culture. As Jacob Van Bruggen in The Future of the Bible points out, quote, the dynamic equivalence translation theory owes its influence and effect to the blending of modern theological prejudices regarding the Bible with data borrowed from communication theory, cultural anthropology, and modern sociology rather than to the insights from linguistics, unquote. Page 151, published by Thomas Nelson, Incorporated, 1978. 
The implications of this new racism are far-reaching. Instead of working to change a people, we have a static and a racist view of a people and their culture. It is the Bible and the mission which must change, not the people. We must teach a, quote, black English, unquote, if any at all, and a black, brown, or yellow Christianity, if any at all. It takes only a brief excursion into, quote, liberation theology, unquote, contextualization, and light doctrines to realize that it is not Christianity at all which is taught, but a counterfeit. Relevance is sought, not to the Lord and His Word, but to fallen man and his racial heritage. Such is not the gospel. It is the new racism. The new racism passes, however, for vital, relevant Christianity. It is widely promoted by seminaries and missionary organizations. It encourages races like individuals to trumpet the existentialist and hippie slogan, quote, I want to be me, unquote. The historical goal is racial realization. Providentially, the early missionaries to Europe coming from North Africa, Asia Minor, and the Mediterranean world generally had no such regard for the European mind. They regarded it as unregenerate and in need of being broken and redeemed. All the plagues and evils of, quote, the European mind, unquote, are products of the fallen man and the relics of barbarian cultures, not of Christ and his word. All that is good in, quote, the European mind, unquote, is a result of Christian culture, not of race. The words of Paul are a sharp rebuke to all who want men to glory in their blood, race, or history. Quote, For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Unquote. 1 Corinthians 4 7, July 1980. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he assures by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.
Tell the 